Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Neighbor Union. I'm with Nate Spencer. This is Ruth Van, and we are thrilled that you're still listening. Just thrilled. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> thrilled. Thanks for joining the conversation. Um, we are uh, going to jump into a pretty exciting topic today that uh, Nate came up with in the last several months through just life experience. And we have a couple of thoughts we're going to share um, and weave a little bit of a narrative here as we go through the next uh, next episode. So, Nate, uh, tell us a little bit about what you've been doing the last few months and how that triggered this topic. Okay. I have been uh, substitute teaching in an elementary school for a couple months. It's been a long-term long-term um, sub-position. So I've been in the classroom every day, and uh, it's a second-grade class. And and this um, this topic kind of came to me because, well, I couldn't, it was just amazing how many, how much art these second-graders make on a daily basis. It's kind mm. of like their main thing. And uh, this class, anyway. And I know all all kids are usually into some kind of art thing, like just drawing pictures of their family or whatever. But this class in particular, I think, is really particularly bent on on art and making things. And it's really neat to watch. And it's not only um, – it's, it's really social for them. So, like, they're having yeah. – like, uh, what they started doing was making books. And I think this was related to a story that they read – earlier in the year when I wasn't there. But either some character in the story made a book or or wrote a story down in a book or something. And so one of the kids, one or two of them, started making a book, and they just folded paper over and had the teacher staple it. And then they just so – so it's like it's shaped like a book. And then they go through and draw and write stories. It actually kind of has the format for some of them of a comic book, which I thought was great because my first day there, <laughs> I brought in a comic book to show them to like, cause we like show them things. Here's, here's things, some stuff that, you know, kind of like show and tell basically. Oh, you, so, so the teacher did show and tell too. Yeah. Yeah. That's the teachers fun. had show and tell also. So one of the things I brought in was this, comic or graphic novel series that I've been rereading and I started reading when I was a teenager but anyway it was um I brought that in and not not because of that at all just coincidentally they had been making these books that are formatted like comic books (laughs) and and the funny thing was that whoever started I don't even know who it was like it just took off and like everybody in the class wanted to make books and so they started doing this almost daily every somebody every day would ask me if I could like staple their papers and but um some days it was just like overwhelming like there'd be eight or nine books getting made and Uh, that's incredible (laughs) I know and the great thing was the teachers encouraged it by um or we encouraged it by giving them a space over near the classroom library so there was there's a bookshelf a couple of bookshelves where kids get books to read and we like um, set up a um, little basket where the kids could put their original books on top of the bookshelf. <laughs> so these were options. For their own books were options for them to go and re- take down and read for reading times. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which was great. And um, and I was just fascinated by the, well, how social it was and how like it took off. And it took off with all the kids. It wasn't limited Things aren't as sharply divided by clicks at that age, obviously. Right. So the kid that played a lot of sports was doing it. The kids that were sort of outcasts were doing it. Not outcasts, but a little bit loners, you know, were doing it. The, like, drama queens were doing it. The, everyone. It's bringing everyone together. <laughs> yeah. Everybody make a book. Wow. And so that was the one example, but just all in general, like there's just a lot of art going on among these kids. Yeah. And um, the there's a no- very noticeable difference if you, I mean, to me anyway, if you spend 
much time around artists. It's like, or adults anyway, adults and adult artists. There's a, uh, just a, as with everything, a different spirit that kids go about things with. Hmm. And this is, art is the same and it's just, so uh, anyway, I could get to the actual question that I had for the, our topic today, which is basically, what what does it say, or why do kids have, the, the, they have an ease about the way they make art and then uh, this uninhib- uninhibited way of doing it? Hmm. And why is that? And what does it say? What can it teach us? Or what can it say about art, the arts, uh, how faith compels the arts? Yeah. Um yeah, I guess that's that's the topic for the day. Yeah, I love it. So, Nate, when I first got your question, I got uh-huh. excited because I don't really have any uh, experience in a second grade classroom, and I know that was new for you too. <laughs> yeah, it but, was. But um, I did spend nine years with uh, teaching middle schoolers and high schoolers, mm-hmm. but... Um, the middle schoolers, you know, when you teach, first of all, when you teach middle schoolers and mm-hmm. people in the community or on an airplane or whatever, they ask you, well, what do you do for a living? I always emphasize that I taught middle schoolers because uh-huh. <laughs> everyone's reaction was always like, you're a saint. You're incredible. <laughs> yeah. God bless you. Right. And, and then it would be followed by like, I could never teach middle schoolers. That sounds awful, but yeah. we need people to be with our middle schoolers. So thank you. Thank you for what you're doing in your community. And yeah, like, they just okay. shower you with praise. <laughs> Everyone's like feeling so grateful for what I'm doing, but no one wants to do it. And um, uh-huh. I always found it really funny because I, to some degree, well, I, I enjoyed middle schoolers in different ways than I enjoyed high schoolers. I enjoyed high school teaching because the conversations were a little bit more uh, personally interesting to me. You can go in a little bit more depth. But Mm -hmm. as people and human beings, the middle schoolers, bar none, were the most interesting people um, to deal with. And, um, And I had more stories from my middle schoolers than I would have at all from my high schoolers. I mean... Every wow. day there was something I could come home with to huh. <laughs> tell people about something a middle schooler had done. But one of the things that I noticed um, as it relates to this like childlike approach to art and creating is um, the changes that I would all, every year inevitably see between 6th and 8th graders. There's this like really terrifying transformation but inevitable um, between those three grades. And, um, and it's also the reason why we all hate middle school. Like if you ever meet anyone who is like, Oh, middle school, that was awesome. You should be concerned. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) If you loved middle school, I just, you need to talk to me. We need to talk about why. Yeah. You loved middle school. But anyway, I've never heard anybody say that. (laughs) I know it's rare. It's really rare. Because it is really the worst time of our lives, pretty much. Yeah. It's yeah. awful. Um, and the and it's because of this transformation that happens. So we start out, I would have, you know, in the fall, I'd have 20 um, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed sixth graders who would raise their hand about everything. Like, Miss Van, can yeah. I breathe? Miss Van, <laughs> can I get a tissue? You know, and you'd have to be like, if everybody can just get a tissue when they need one. Please stop asking me these questions. <laughs> they're adorable, right? And they're um, the sixth graders are the ones that are just so have no filter. They have no self awareness. They don't know yep. that they look ridiculous or that yep. they put their shirt on backwards or um, or that they're really not cool. They're not aware that they're not cool yet. Um, yeah. And these are the kids that would come up to me in the morning and they just want to tell you everything. They want to talk to you because they don't think you're uncool yet. They haven't figured that out about me. You know, they still think I'm kind of cool to talk to. So they're the ones that would come up to me and say, you know, Miss Van, yesterday we got a trampoline and then my sister, she fell. And anyway, she also has these new shoes 
but the soles of the shoes came off. My mom was really mad, and but she made some really bad brownies yesterday, and <laughs> I didn't. She put the walnuts in them, and I hate walnuts. But tomorrow I have a quiz and and uh, math, and I don't know how I'm gonna do on that. And you're just like, wow, <laughs> it's a stream what of was that? What did you just say? That's crazy. And I just love them for that, right? There's just like there's just a loveliness in them being completely themselves and mm-hmm. and a and a firm belief that the people in the world around them by and large care and um and are not primarily there to judge them or just yeah. scrutinize them. Um and so there's just this lightness and a self-forgetfulness that is really delightful but of course this is the reason why we hate middle school by the time they get to the eighth grade they're these Mm -hmm. really boring horrible people (laughs) Um, and we were all those people so I'm not specifically targeting my students if any of them are listening right now but um or my former students but they they start to become uber aware of themselves their image, how people are perceiving them. And it's like this little disease. It starts affecting their actual personalities. And so they become muted. Um, They're Mm -hmm. not um, as expressive. They shut down. Um, They they turn more fear-based instead of, like, Um, freedom-oriented. And... And then to some degree, we can laugh at that and go, well, thankfully, we do somewhat recalibrate as we move through high school into college and become grownups. And we can shed some of this self-seriousness. But I actually think we don't fully ever regain that um, sixth grade self-forgetfulness. I think that there's a little bit of like we're we're never going to get to the place where um we've we've we're completely rid of that weird phenomenon of being a little overly concerned about how people are viewing us and and thinking of this and this of course affects what we make as artists um in a really profound way uh, it goes as self-consciousness that actually gets in the way of the process of making um yeah uh, and so for artists, this is a huge issue because you're constantly trying to get past that. Um, it's the knowing now of your self-awareness that you're trying to forget your self-awareness. And yeah, right. it's just hard to undo that. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I, I find this super relevant. Uh, I do think there are ways, and we can talk about this toward the, towards the end of the podcast, of I do think there are ways to be able to curb this. Like, I think this side of the kingdom, we won't be able to completely unknow that, but there are ways to kind of jump back into uh, at least a, a middle ground of moving towards that direction, even though we won't maybe completely recapture it. Um, yeah. So, but Nate, you were talking earlier before we recorded about some recent experiences you had, one on sort of your reflections on your own self as a musician and your kind of recent um, musings about where you are with music. And then also some of your, some of the new ways that your creativity um, and creative energies are moving and how that relates to this topic. So... Do you mind? I mean, are you interested in sharing some of those? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so I was kind of reflecting, and I've been doing, the, well, in our podcast notes, but before that even, uh, just on and off for the last couple of years. Um, so I released I released the CD th- going on three years ago, I guess. And, um, and I Hold on. A, I think everyone should know that they can Google and find that CD if they want it. Oh yeah, sure. Can you do a plug real quick? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. You can find me at geez, I don't even is it natespencer.com? <laughs> I, think I think so. Yeah, I think or or Bandcamp. You can find me on Bandcamp. Oh nice. That's a good way. Uh Nate Spencer on Bandcamp. You can 
um, listen to mu my music or download it or, or whatever if you want. Um, and that that's about three years old, the recording, or the finished product anyway. And I, I, um, it was like very, com almost completely independent, like not, I mean, I had a lot of other musicians on, but I didn't, I did all the, all this engineering stuff and recording it and producing it and everything myself. And it was a huge, a huge project that was really important to me art creatively. But I also kind of, I, I mean, I also had the practical motivation of I needed something to sell. Mm -hmm. um, and um, actually in the, in this, in the balance of what we're talking about here, I think I was, I think that process was pretty, pretty successful as far as not being too, too inhibited by, but like not being too um, inhibited, artistically inhibited or s too self-aware or something. Mm -hmm. But, um, but I bring all that up because I, that was the last thing I really did that was, that serious musically and I haven't even really I mean I've played a house concert or two here and there and I've written a couple songs I haven't pursued music with the same intensity or consistency that I was before and I was doing it really like with the plan of being of doing it professionally mm -hmm. and um and I think uh, on reflection, it's uh, it's not that I'm quitting or anything or planning on, uh, I'm still very much planning on making music, but I've really had to go through a process of reflecting on why I was doing it. And right now, my thinking is that I was really caught up in trying to make it succeed hmm. in a way that, uh, it, like, succeed. And it wasn't like... Um, super selfish or anything it was just i wanted to succeed at it so that i could do it more mm -hmm. i mean there's always that you know that little glow of wanting to be famous too mm -hmm. which <laughs> yeah which we kind of have to like yeah which we'll probably talk about in a bit but <laughs> right right but uh just the idea of wanting to succeed so much that like i was pushing my career in this real pragmatic way to try and, and it's not like I was ever very good at, it. I mean, I'm terrible at public relations. I couldn't even remember my website just now to tell our audience, <laughs> but uh, that but could be was, seen as a virtue, Nate, just side note. I, yeah, I suppose. so. <laughs> but, um, for, for me, like that kind of pragmatic motivation of, tr of trying to needing to make it succeed and needing to have that be my job, at some point to push it hard enough so that it becomes my career really put an on the creative my creativity can't bear that load forever right my creative yeah. energy and my creative self i don't think they're designed to bear that load i don't think they're designed to bear the load of needing to be of, of dr being driven to be professional and have a and careerist about it at the same time as being as committed as I am to making the art that I want to make. Maybe some people, I don't know. I mean, I know people who make great art and they devote themselves to their careers too. Mm -hmm. I don't think I could uh, with that much intensity. I'd have to divide my allegiances, I guess, as it were. Like, um, and I'd either, I'd have to, I'd have to kind of give up on the sort of deep visions uh, of artistic vision that I have. Mm -hmm. Not that I always realize that, but I, I just have it. I always have this, oh, I, I have this idea that I have to, I know just what I want and I have to get it just right. And then when I do that, I'm satisfied, but it's not, that's where all the energy goes. Yeah. And I'm not, uh, there's none left over for making myself famous or supporting, <laughs> putting food on the table. <laughs> right. <laughs> with, you know, so that's what I've been reflecting on and, and, um, taking a break, I've sort of, without planning to, sort of taking a break from playing music here. But the other side of that is, what's interesting is that very recently, so when I was a kid, even through my teenage years, high school, 
I was I really wanted to be a visual artist. I was mm. drawing all the time, and I was I read a lot of comic books, and I wanted to be a comic book artist, and I wrote comic books sometimes. And my mom actually was an art an illustrator for a while, and my brother was is an artist was an artist, and he was. Uh, that <laughs> that dream kind of died for me for a few reasons I think because <laughs> one I was up even then you can as you can hear me talk about it like it it was starting to take on this weight of needing to be a career right and because and not only that I was you know my mom actually had a career for a while at it and my brother was probably good enough to and and honestly, the work that I was producing probably wasn't good enough to be professional at the time. Mm. And uh, and so that really discouraged me over time, and I kind of gave up drawing. But the interesting thing is, on this break that I'm, well, this is very recent development, but um, I've been taking a break from music, but I've actually started drawing again, which is interesting. Mm. Unplanned. On, like I just kind of got this bug to try and draw, draw a little bit, <laughs> and I got a pad and some pencils and stuff and it's been really fun I've drawn a bunch of pictures and totally have no ulterior motive for them at all I haven't really even showed anybody other than my wife (laughs) (laughs) and um, it's really neat it's been it's like it just exists for its own sake and it's the thing that I do because I want to do it right and some of them are actually somewhat okay and like it doesn't, I'm not really sitting around judging the quality of the drawings, but I, I sometimes surprise myself, and sometimes I'm like, I, sometimes I don't even think about the quality of it. Right. Well, it's interesting because it's almost like you psyched yourself out because you moved to a different medium, and yeah. you said, well, music has all this sort of psychological baggage of what it means, what kind of value... I'm looking to gain personally from making something good in music. And, yeah. and also, uh, the, the, I like how you phrased it, the idea of like the weight that we put on creative work with not just the value that we want, we want to receive personally from the work. Um, we want yeah. the work to provide meaning for us and value for us. And we want the work to, and some, sometimes we want it to justify our existence and yeah. to to provide a sense of significance for our existence. And that's th- a crushing weight on creativity, but also the weight of survival. You ha- you mentioned that for your music that you wanted to live off of it, which is another pretty profound weight. Um, mm-hmm. Reasonable, <laughs> but heavy. And yeah. um, But I like how, I mean, if you switch to a different medium... You don't have those sort of, uh, at least for a while, those same kinds of like psychological baggage weights um, surrounding that. So you can be like, oh, well, drawing, you know, this isn't my thing. And it's funny because I've seen artists do this where they're like, this is a different medium. This isn't really, this isn't my, this isn't the best thing thing that I do. This isn't my arena. And and finding out that actually they're pretty great at it. And it might be because precisely because there's less weight on it because it's a different medium and you've just decided like, oh, well, this it doesn't matter if I'm really crappy at this because it's not the main thing I do. Um, Yeah. And that might be a good exercise for artists to, you know, I think that's one of the reasons that it's helpful to try out different mediums. Yeah. because there is there's less pressure with that. Yeah. Mhm. It's really interesting. I have a friend of mine and also a friend of Nate that uh has done piano lessons for years and years and years. She's always advocating for the idea that you take some time even within your medium to just do uh Im- improv whatever. Whatever improv means for your medium. Yeah. And so for piano students, she'll have them um particularly adults sit down and play the piano and then she'll take all sheet music away and then she'll say hey um go ahead and play a little tune um and it doesn't even have to be melodic it's just you can play nonsense but but put your 
fingers on the keys and strike keys and just kind of start playing. Um, you can just, it, this is a time for spontaneous composition. Yeah. And um, while the premise of that on the outside feels like this kind of exhilarating, exciting prospect, she said more often than not, people sit there and look at her like she's crazy and yeah that, that and, and are like wait what I mean just play any key and to her she's been convinced throughout the years this is a really helpful exercise to get students out of the idea that of how to play the piano or how to play a song or create a song um and and get out of those boxes of like what is right or what what they should be doing or how they're doing it wrong and yeah, instead yeah. just to kind of think about the feeling of the keys being depressed by your fingers and right a sense in your brain but also your intuition of what notes you might want to play next um and so she said a a sizable percentage of people actually refuse the exercise Wow. They sit there at the piano bench. They look at her like she's crazy. And then they just say, I can't do that. That's I, and, amazing. And they might even try to put their fingers on the keys. And then they just sit back and go, no, I can't. I can't do that. Oh, man. <laughs> I, and, and they're too terrified. And so fear plays a really large role, um, I feel like, in all, all of this. You know, keep it, and, and the fear is connected to all of those uh, longings that we have for value and um it's because we've put too much weight on the work you know yeah um, and with kids they don't it's like they've got nothing to lose there's there's no there's no one in the world that thinks that they should be well hopefully um creating something that is extraordinary and so the lack of expectations from others their, their lack of acknowledgement of a culture with expectations or a community of expectations and um, and their own earnestness to just make for the sake of th- the fun of it um, does mm-hmm. free them up to actually create things. And ironically, you know, you think about uh, how often artists are told to just keep making, just put it out there, just and we've yeah. talked about this with the podcast, like just keep recording conversations and see what happens. But um, yeah. <laughs> kids yeah. make a high volume of stuff and like a large percentage of it is crap. But you just yeah, have right. to keep making it, you know. And yeah. in some ways, maybe they're, the students in your class are actually hitting high levels of quality work because they have just kept making these things. Um, if they yeah, keep making uh, these absolutely. little books over time, um, one of them's going to be pretty outstanding. Um, oh yeah. But their their lack of or their 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 lack of the the fear and the inhibitions actually like push them to just make a high volume of things and to be yeah, okay right. with some of them being really poor. Um, yeah. And that, that was kind of one of the principles in the songwriters group, which we've talked about on earlier episodes, the songwriters group that I was, a, I was a part of that I was hosting for a while was, was just crank something out and just like commit to doing something every week mm-hmm. and bringing it. And it, and that's, that is the goal, right. not, not writing great music or great lyrics or doing something that proves its worth, just making something mm-hmm. every week. And that was hugely instructive for a lot of us, I think. Yeah, and I think you have to leave behind the weight that you want to bring to it of value and survival and all that. But then you also have to, it's partly because the creative work deserves your full attention. And and it's you're trying to discover it as you're walking into it and you really need to be lean. <laughs> you, you know, you can't be a dead uh-huh. weight walking into it and the leaner you are going into that jungle and creating and putting together and seeing connections um the the more it's really it's the, it's an act of love for the work that you're making, a self-forgetful act. And yeah. the more self-forgetful you can be, 
in that act and in the making of of the thing that you're making it's it's you're able to pull out your own uh agenda of what you need it to do for you and so you can create a poem or you can write a song uh or you can uh draw and and it becomes this other thing um that is externalized from you, you know, which is sort of just like, this is sort of agape love 101, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And this is God's making, like, this is how God makes. He, cre- he, he creates without this sort of need for it to bear weight on, of being a mirror of his own worth or anything. Um, it's out yeah. of sheer delight. And so, um, and then we just see that reflected in kids um, because there's this period of time before they're not that they're innocent at all, but before mm-hmm. they're they were made aware of themselves in this sort of world that does criticize and judge. And it's a coping mechanism, right? We become eighth graders mm-hmm. and we want to protect ourselves. Um, so a little a bit earlier, Nate, you were talking about the weight for you and just in general, you're thinking about the weight for artists of the work needing to be a basis of survival. And, Mm -hmm. um, like we don't live in a world, you know, ironically, it would be great to be a kid and to not worry about your sense of security and where your next meal is coming from or how you're going to pay your bills. But for artists, that is actually like a fact. Um, so I don't know. Yeah. I speak into that. Yeah. There's never, there's, there's no easy answer for the, the professional artist. I don't think. And if you look at, look at the situation through all of human history, basically it's the same. It's like they're in a precarious position and, and they're always, they're trying to do something that basically doesn't make any financial sense. <laughs> And then when it does, when it's like something becomes popular or or does bring them fame or uh, uh, it supports them, that's sometimes can have a negative effect on the art itself. Um, But yeah, it's not like a virtue to dwell in the place where where you're just a starving artist, but you're suffering. I don't think it's I don't, right. It's like you're you're becoming a martyr for your art. I don't think that that's a virtue or a virtuous thing or anything mm-hmm. to aspire to. Um, I think there's got to be at least some practices, maybe that could at least make it feel like and like there's less weight on the art, and maybe maybe spending the time the time for the time that you're not a professional artist but you're aspiring to be maybe that's like the time to learn that because hmm. you actually have this the art that you're making it, at least the financial dimension isn't dependent on it and there's a lot of other dimensions is the mm-hmm. acceptance wanting to be thought mm-hmm. well of and everything but that period is maybe a a, a good period to maybe kind of almost a blessing like you think of it as the thing you want to get past but if you think of it as the the place where you actually learn to make art in such a way that it's not you're you're not being squeezed to make it mm-hmm. um and uh and then and then that i just yeah i know a, a big something you hear a lot is and i've felt many times is like well I just I have a full-time job and when I get home it's like I don't have the energy to do anything else I don't want to do I I either I have to force myself to to make something or do something Mm -hmm. artistic um and so sometimes that's the uh that's that's the basis for an assumption that uh, that person shouldn't either shouldn't make art or shouldn't try to like make anything ambitious or anything and yeah. my thought with that is, well, one, it's I, it's it's obviously true that that is the way we feel. 
Uh, what what if I sort of wonder sometimes if like maybe there was never supposed to be such a thing as a professional artist or someone who's solely mm. dependent on their art and like like what if um, the art the artwork was actually a way of recovering from work what if it was thought because my my hunch is that in the moment where we're too exhausted to make something we're actually turning the art into the same thing as work rather than using it as a counterbalance to, I mean, I mean the bad parts of work, like mm-hmm. the, the exhaustion of work, you know, mm-hmm. it could, when it could actually be a, a counterbalance to how work drains us, it could actually fill us back up maybe, mm-hmm. but it might need to be freed of this weight of, of being, okay, I've been supporting myself, putting food on the table all day. Now I'm going to go do this other thing that I have to and it's and I need to do it in the same mode and for the same purposes and so I'm essentially still trying to support myself I'm it's almost like working 12 hours instead of eight hours or something (laughs) and of course that's exhausting but what if the art the artistic life was more of the the recharging and the filling up and I wonder if it's possible to think for the person who is maybe thinking about doing something artistic that's more ambitious more serious, maybe even professionally, but is just exhausted by their their day job, like maybe it's a good idea rather to think of the art that they're creating after work or before work as not as more work, but as just as a uh as a recharge, recharging or refilling. Mm-hmm. Um and yeah. so it it takes on a different it's in it's it's something you do in a different mode than you do like your 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 day job that is exhausting for you right yeah i mean and that would speak to the idea of a recalibration of the fact that our we are all creative and um that's a part of being an image bearer and that because we've kind of professionalized art yeah um you know, so this is like a de-professionalizing of the idea of creating. That yeah. make, making, the act of making is something that other people, like everyone does. This is just a human activity. Um, yeah. But we've kind of sliced it up into this idea of it's a, it's a particular profession. Um, yeah. And maybe that's not super helpful. On the other side of that, I'm thinking about periods of history where artists had patrons and they were freed up um and for whatever reason um presumably because they were very talented they get picked up by royalty or whoever Mm -hmm. um who decides that they should be paid a living and just outright and that they make things um And they produce beautiful things. Now, in that, there is a little bit of, I want you to make what I want you to make. So there's that. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, but I, there is something to that idea that I think is really helpful. Um, I like the communal, or just the idea that for a society, for a civilization, that the arts are important enough that there are people that we actually just decide we're going to like make sure they can eat and we subsidize their ability to make beautiful things full-time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, I, there's no way, how would you set this up, but, you know, is there a correlation between periods in history where that was more of a practice in a civilization than others and whether or not that volume and commitment and uh, investment in artists being freed up to not worry about the weight of survival um, Mm -hmm. helps them to produce better work Um, yeah you know I would I would imagine it would be um, but it definitely it definitely helps push us back pre-adolescence into the self-forgetfulness when you don't have to worry about the weight of food and shelter and bills (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly. a definite variable that would help tremendously. I had um, a couple of encounters that I remembered when we were going through this topic uh, with artists 
who were able to articulate um, a pretty radical orientation towards the work they were doing. Um, and one of them was a, a, a couple who are, that we're both friends with who decided they were going to move to California and try to pursue their work um, mm-hmm. and, uh, in the arts. And um, a couple years ago had a chance to be able to catch up with them uh, in, in L.A., and it was just this beautiful moment. I, I probably am botching the way they articulated it, but it was this idea of, you know, we're pursuing our our dreams of being able to maybe become full-time professional actors, and that would be fantastic. But at some point we had to say that it was okay if the life that we lived was one of pursuit of that, even if we never mm-hmm. got there. Yeah. And I just remember being bulldozed by that comment of, wow, you know, yeah, I'm going to pursue something pretty lofty and like pretty much equal to worldly success. Um, but I'm also realizing that I might not ever get there. And, and the, 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 the story of me trying to get there, the narration of that life story is just as interesting to me and satisfying. So if I never get there... Yeah. I like that we were Uber drivers and we lived in this teeny apartment and tried to figure (laughs) it out. Like that's a good story. And they were satisfied with that. And I, I was really, um, that was really refreshing to me. Um, and then another one was somebody I met years ago. I was in my twenties. Uh, he worked at Labrie, uh, study center, which is a basically for listeners who don't know about Labrie, it's, um, so much I could say about that good, bad, and the ugly, but, um, it's essentially this really great concept of, uh, folks coming to study, um, theology, culture, philosophy, and they live in the same house together and you come for a term or a couple of weeks. Um, and you also clean and you do laundry. And, uh, so it's a little bit of, a experiment and communal, uh, life together. And mm-hmm. um, so one of the workers there had this dramatic, for me as a 26-year-old was just bulldozing to me, was uh, that he, he was completely fine and knowing, very, he was very confident that he would never be famous and that he would uh-huh. never <laughs> do anything in his life that was going to be remembered by very many people. And that after he, I mean, it was, it was, at the moment, it felt a little morbid. You know, he's like, I'm going to die, yeah. and there are going to be people, like family members and friends maybe, who will remember me for a little bit, but they're going to die too. Yeah. And um, But I'm not going to be remembered by, like, civilization. Only a few people really get remembered in that way. And yeah. so, you know, I'm here, and uh, he wasn't like a nihilist. He was like, I'm going to love these people in my community and do what I can, but I'm, I'm living a small life. But it's hugely significant because of uh, who made me and who loves me. And the, this is not the end of the story either, you know. Um, but, yeah. but my whole worth is not tied up or my agenda is not tied up with I'm going to achieve some sort of grand worldly success. Um, which I think that we have in the church a problem with dis- dis- mm. discerning between those things sometimes. Um, yeah, and that can be a disservice to artists in particular. Um, but, uh, yeah, that he was just like, I, I'm, I'm, this is the, my community and this is what I'm going to do. And it's not a limited, and it's not, he's not feeling sorry for himself. It was just a reality of, um, I am part of this really large cosmos, but I'm very much loved by God and I'm going to do this life. And, um, but I don't. I don't think I'm going to be famous. And and now I'm saying this out loud going, that's not really profound, Ruth. But as a 26-year-old, it was very profound because I was still in that mode of, what am I going to do with my life that's going to matter forever? Um, yeah. And it does. My life has eternal like significance and consequences and what I do with it. But it's not, it's not in, in I, I don't measure that by the way that, 
um, the world around me measures that necessarily. Yeah, right. And so it's very, it's tricky how those things get conflated sometimes. Um, yeah. So, yeah, th- those were two really pointed memories for me of uh, people kind of radically shifting in their assumptions of what it means to make things and um, keeping a good head about them about what it means to make those things. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, did you, um, can you mention the, the, the example you brought up about the medieval period? I think that's a good. Oh yeah. So I was, we were, Nate and I were talking about this listeners and I remembered, you know, a lot of like medieval artists never signed their artwork. Um, yeah. Well, let's just, let's just sit silently in that for a second. If you're listening right now, you can just take a really deep breath. There was a time period yeah. where a lot of people made beautiful things and they didn't put their name on it. I mean, yeah. whoa, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> that is some yeah. profound freedom. And there's nothing wrong with putting your name on your artwork, obviously. But I yeah. do think it speaks to maybe an era pre-ref, or sorry, sorry, pre-enlightenment because we, we're just yeah. going to keep, we're going to keep hitting this problem over and over again we'll we'll call it like we'll just keep bashing the enlightenment but basically um a time period where people just wanted to make beautiful things just because (laughs) and uh and the attention i mean we have we have this all over different phases of history um yeah but the 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 beauty in what people made during certain periods of history that were uh, unbelievable acts of time and sacrifice uh, and energy into seemingly very small spaces, mundane activities, right? That of like this one room of this one building that, you know, may may or may not be here in a hundred years, but this, but whatever survives, we can look back at it now and realize the kind of intense, um, attention to detail and care that they took with that. And that is such a gift. Um, when artists can make things like that and it requires letting go of your sense of someone may never see this mosaic in a hundred years, I don't know, or it might get destroyed, yeah. but we have to just, there's, and this is where the faith component starts jumping in, right? Of yeah. this, this is a beautiful and good and wonderful thing to do regardless of whether or not this is seen by people a hundred years from now. And regardless yeah. of whether or not people who see it and appreciate it know that I'm the one who did it. I yeah, mean, that's right. just like, that sort of gets to the bottom of the whole dilemma with how to get back there um back to that pre-adolescent phase but we have had periods of history where that's been more of a theme and of a norm than i think we're in Mm -hmm. right now Mm -hmm. Um, i think yeah and i think the one of the last things i wanted to mention for the podcast is just as we nate and i were talking about this topic is thinking about the silhouette of the garden you know thinking about Genesis 3 and not as children being innocent and pre-fall at all because let's be we all know that that's not true (laughs) but um but the idea of an awareness right the eating of the the from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil it it did it did make her aware and and Adam aware of things that they didn't know before um, but yeah. that awareness didn't actually make them more holy. <laughs> it made them fearful right. and yeah. it made them ashamed. And so um, it's that to me, there's these silhouettes and shadows of this topic kind of cast into that text um, and thinking about uh, there is this transformation that happens in adolescence at some point where we become aware of things that we can't unknow anymore Mm -hmm. and that awareness at least on this side of the kingdom is pretty permanent but that it can be abated you know we can uh, mediate that to some degree but um, 
it's remarkable that after that awareness of their nakedness, which in some ways sixth graders in their kind of emotional, psychological, relational immaturity feel very naked to me, um, or seem very naked, you know, in that sort of Mm -hmm. metaphor. Like Mm -hmm. after that, there's this like, there's this turn in the Genesis 3 story of the shame of that awareness leads them to put on fig leaves. And so to me, I just see that again in the metaphor of like an eighth grader who just basically starts literally hiding behind baseball caps and shutting down and, um, and muting the real like fullness of who they are. So I don't know. That was like my, my last little kind of point that I felt like this, this is speaking to that, that fear and that hiding that we do. And it unfortunately affects what we make, you know? So, yeah. Well, I hope you guys have enjoyed hearing our musings on this topic. One day we'll have some place where you can come and like tell us what you think or what you want to say about the topic, but we're still working on that. At least we have a name now. Yeah, we have a name. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> we've given you that now. There's Neighbor Union. Um, uh-huh. And it's even on iTunes. I just feel so special that we're, you know, somehow on this global platform. And I thank you because you're probably one of five people listening to us. But um, we are so grateful. <laughs> yeah. <It's, laughs> if you're uh, one of the five or three. The thing I always hear podcasters say is, uh like r- rate us and leave us a review on iTunes can we do uh, is, can is that is that uh possible um, do you know I think that's possible that's a little terrifying to me right i have to not it is be, uh, <laughs> self-conscious I right. have to be self-forgetful <laughs> when yeah. i ask people to do that <laughs> yeah, but exactly. yes please but supposedly that drives more traffic like I we show up right. more yeah i think yeah. you're right that is true that's one way to respond if you're want or if you know Ruth or Nate, you can actually just contact us directly because sometimes we don't really know our friends are listening to this. So yeah, shout out. Um, and that's always encouraging. So yeah, um, definitely. But you guys keep making good things and don't get your, let yourself get in the way. That's our yeah. encouragement. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time. We'll see you later. Bye.